near sideline. Trinaman is there. Makes the catch at the 30, 20, 10, and just like that! Touchdown Cougars on the first play of the game! Takes it down the right side of the lane, right to the rim, scoop, and a score! It rolls around and drops down. Takes this free kick and curls it inside the left post. What a goal! He's been on the headset for the last quarter century of BYU sports. Now, he's on BYU Radio every week as we go behind the mic with Greg Rubel. Here's your host, the voice of the Cougars, Greg Rubel. Hello and good evening once again, Cougar Nation. Welcome inside Studio 2 at the BYU Broadcasting Building in Provo, Utah for Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel. A weekly hour of interviews with uh, BYU sports personalities who've been part of our Cougar sports memories over the years. Glad you're making this show a part of your week. Whether listening live on BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143, BYU or the BYU Radio app, you can also get this weekly show on demand via podcast. Subscribe to Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel. You can also hear the archived version of this show on our Behind the Mic show page at BYURadio.org. This week is a special week at Lavelle Edwards Stadium, so tonight is a special night on Behind the Mic. This Saturday, Saturday, BYU will retire the jersey numbers of former BYU quarterbacks Mark Wilson and Robbie Bosco and former BYU running back Luke Staley, the number six. And tonight, I'm happy to visit with all three as they prepare to be honored this weekend in Provo. And tonight's jersey retirement special is sponsored by BYU Alumni, which presents our weekly Catching Up with the Cougars segment, BYU Alumni, Connected for Good. Find your chapter and get connected at alumni.byu.edu slash Chapters. We're going to take tonight's interviews chronologically relative to BYU football history, starting with first Mark Wilson, then following Mark with Robbie Bosco, and finally Luke Staley. We start with a native of North Seattle who now lives in Utah and who back in the late 70s took BYU from trend-setting pass attack to stratospheric aerial assault. He is Mark Wilson, who from 1977 through 1979 threw for almost 8,000 yards and more than 60 touchdowns, replacing an injured Gifford Nielsen during Mark's sophomore season, then rewriting the BYU record books as a junior and a senior. His very first start in 1977, uh, 1977 saw him throw for a BYU record seven touchdowns. Against Utah that year, he threw for 571 yards and five scores. He split much of the 1978 season with Jim McMahon. Then with McMahon redshirting in 1979, Mark was once again at the wheel as BYU opened 11-0 before losing in the Holiday Bowl to Indiana 38-37 after a missed last second, uh, last minute a 27-yard field goal attempt. Mark was a consensus All-American as a senior and a first-round draft pick of the Oakland Raiders and played for multiple Super Bowl champions over a pro career that lasted over a decade. He is one of BYU's seven inductees into the College Football Hall of Fame, and he joins us now on Behind the Mic. And Mark, now that I've recited all of those superlatives, our listeners need to know that when you were a high school football star at Shorecrest High School in Seattle, football was then your least favorite sport. It actually was my least favorite sport growing up all the way through high school. <laughs> and, and the reason why, but this is why, you know, it wasn't that I didn't love playing football, it's just that it was the one game that I could least control the outcome. And it's because there's 11 guys, it's a consummate team game, and especially a quarterback, you know, you, can't, you don't block guys, and you don't run routes, you don't catch the ball, and you need all those guys to do their part. And so football was always very frustrating to me because in basketball, I was a really good basketball player. I could, you know, I could kind of dictate the outcome of the game in many respects. And in baseball, I was a pitcher, and I batted cleanup, and I played out in the field when I wasn't pitching. I could absolutely dictate the outcome of the game if I was pitching, you know, if they never scored and I hit, you know, I hit a, made it, you know, hit the ball pretty well. I mean, we were going to probably win. And but football was not like that, and so football was always kind of a frustration. But I love football because all all my buddies played, and that was just, a, you know, it's a great, it's a great social thing growing up. And you know, from that standpoint, I loved it. But of all the sports I played, it was probably my least favorite. <laughs> So when it, came, when it came time to decide on, on where to continue your education, go to college, how did the uh, recruiting process uh, proceed and the role of Lance Reynolds in that? Yeah, Lance was on his mission there. Lance was a offensive lineman for BYU. And to, to be honest, but again, you've got to remember the context of the time. There, there were no satellites, right? You couldn't plug in and watch any college game you wanted to watch. You know, you're, you're pretty much going to watch what was on the major networks. And growing up in Seattle, that was the Pac-8 in those days. It wasn't even the Pac-10. Yeah. 
it was the Pac-8. And so, you know, you, we watched a lot of Washington, and there was no pro team in Seattle. And so it was, a, it was all, you know, essentially the Pac-8, which is basically West Coast teams. And that, that, of course, did not include BYU. So I really didn't know anything about BYU. Um, and then Lance Reynolds kind of showed up. BYU sent me some letters. I started to pay attention a little bit. And, and Lance Reynolds was really the one who got me really interested. He'd come over to my house. My mom would feed him. <laughs> and Lance would tell stories about BYU and about the guys and about playing on the football team. And, and boy, that really whetted my appetite. And I loved Lance. I loved when he came over. I loved hearing his stories. And this was 1974. I graduated from high school in 1975. But in 1974, Gary Shardy was a great quarterback for BYU. I think they led the nation in passing. He took them to the Fiesta Bowl. I remember watching that Fiesta Bowl. I remember, you know, Gary got hurt. Mark Giles, I think, finished the game. But Gary, uh, but knowing that BYU had such a prolific offense and they were throwing the ball like 35, 40 times a game, I mean, that was pretty amazing. Because like, in, th- in those days, of course, all the big powerhouse schools, they ran the wishbone, they ran the power of ear. Nobody was throwing it 35 times a game. So this little school in Utah with Gary Shady throwing it that many times a day was, was pretty interesting. And, you know, if you're going to go play college football as a quarterback – you know, you can either go hand off 50 times a game, or, or if you have an opportunity, you can go someplace where you can throw it 35 to 40 times a game. So that was pretty interesting to me, and, and probably more than anything, that's what, what made the decision for me to come to BYU. You came to BYU, and people just remember you solely, maybe, perhaps as, as a quarterback, but baseball was still part of your plan when you got here, right, wasn't it? Yeah, in fact, my, my first I came here on a football-baseball scholarship, and uh, when you're – but I think – but I think football kind of footed most of the bill because when I was a freshman, um, I, I had to be in uh, spring football. So I actually played baseball all winter with the baseball team. I was a pitcher. It's kind of interesting. You know, that indoor mound that was in that Smithfield house, there yeah. were two indoor mounds, and pitchers got times to throw on, in the off season. And the time that I, I threw was the same time as Jack Morris. So Jack and I were side-by-side. <laughs> Throwing indoors, you know that that winter that was it's kind of fun to think about. But but anyway, when when spring football came around, uh, I needed to be in spring football. That was kind of the rule. So I, I stopped playing baseball, went and played uh, spring football, and then went back to baseball, played a few games. Actually, I, I registered the next year in football, and but but things just were, were so different. Uh, I, I I really developed a love for football, and, I, and the reason I did is. You know, it's funny. When you come out of high school, you think you know just about everything. And I found out I didn't know anything with respect to football. So I'm learning all these things about offensive football, and and it's just so amazing, and I'm loving every minute of it. And conversely, you know, as a baseball player uh, in college, or at least for BYU, their pitchers did not bat or play in the field. They had a designated hitter. And that was so foreign to me because one of the reasons I was a good pitcher is because I couldn't wait to get them out so I could get up to bat. (laughs) And, and so when you took that element of the game away, it just wasn't the same. And so my love for baseball faded. At the same time, my, my love for football just exploded. And uh, so after that, um, that redshirt year, I decided I was just going to stay with football. So Gary Scheide kind of attracted you to BYU, and then you get to play behind Gifford Nielsen, and you get to play with Jim McMahon, and you get to be coached by Doug Scoville. You know, it's, it's amazing to think of think back to those days. Now, of course, nobody, we really didn't know all that stuff, right? I mean, we knew that, Look, all we knew was that Gifford was great. Yeah. Because <laughs> Jim and I, uh, you know, my friend, Jim and I hadn't played, and so we knew that Gifford was great, and, and Gifford truly was. In fact, to this day, you know, some 40 years later, I still maintain that Gifford not been, not gotten hurt, he would have won the Heisman Trophy in 1977. That's, that's my firm belief. Gifford was amazing, and, and you know, it was just so... Uh, such a great uh, position to be in because uh, I remember backing up Gifford, I, I'd stand behind the huddle so I'd hear the play call and then I'd watch Gifford uh, because part of our, you know, part of what we needed to be able to do is read the defense. And in high school, I never read the defense one time. I didn't even know anything about that. I just threw it to my buddy who was the tight end. <laughs> 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 and I think in high school, that's what you do. But we got in college and with this system of ours, you, you had to read the defense and, and so I, I would hear the play in the huddle. I would then watch Gifford, read, kind of try and read the defense and see where he was going to throw the ball. And it took me a couple of years. I finally kind of figured it out by watching him. But it was really by watching him. And he was a master. He was great. 
And so getting a chance to watch him every day in practice and learn from him in that way was just, was just amazing. And then, you know, having Jim there, and it wasn't just Jim. We had a lot of really talented guys. A guy named Royce Bybee was really talented, and Terry yeah. McEwen and Mark Flammer. All those guys were really talented guys that were on the roster as quarterbacks who, you know, during their term, you know, they really never got to play because there were other guys like me and Jim and Gifford. But those guys were really talented. And the reason, and especially Jim, Jim, of course, a great player. But the reason I mention it is because you had to come to practice and you had to be geared up to compete. Because if you, if you weren't, you were going to be embarrassed because these guys could really play and they could really throw it. And so you needed to come and you needed to, you needed to come with a certain kind of intensity or you're going to get left behind and you're going to get embarrassed. And, and that was actually a great thing that I think pushed all of us. I think it pushed Gifford to some extent. It certainly pushed me. I think it pushed Jim. It pushed all of us. And, and as a consequence, we became much better than we would have otherwise became. You mentioned Gift getting hurt in 1977. And had he not, you think he would have gone on to win the Heisman. Because he gets hurt, you are now thrust into the spotlight as the starting quarterback. And uh, your first start was memorable for so many reasons. The way it turned out, it becomes very memorable. But the week leading up to it, uh, that, that was a stressful time for you to have to step in for Gift, wasn't it? Oh, my goodness. Um, in fact, I'll never forget that week. <clears throat> I remember my wife, Colleen, and I were married then, and she stayed in Seattle. She went up for the Oregon State game and then stayed up in Seattle. And I remember going over to the hospital maybe on Monday afternoon, and, and I, I knew that Gifford had hurt his knee badly and had surgery and was going to be out and, and spent some time with Giff. And then I, I knew that I was going to be the starting quarterback going into the next game, which was Colorado State. And they had a really good team. We were traveling there. and. And I was so nervous. I don't know that I slept that week. I don't know that I ate that week. And the reason I was nervous is I was so concerned about, you know, not upholding kind of my end of this bargain. I, I, I knew that the quarterback had to play well in our system for us to have a chance to win. I knew Colorado State was really good. And more than anything, I was afraid that I wouldn't play well. And as a consequence, I would let, you know, everybody down on this team. And uh, so it was it was an incredibly stressful week, uh, like I said, a week that you know I haven't forgotten. How did Doug Scoville make things as easy as he could for you, if that's possible? Well, this is going to tell you the genius of Doug Scoville and why he was such a great coach. Um, he called me into his office during the day, so I, you know, between classes, I went down and saw him, and he sat me down at his desk and put the playbook in front of me, and he gave me a, a bunch of those post-it notes. And he said, I want you to go through this playbook, and I want you to put a post-it note on every play that you like. And then he said something that was profound, and it's going to sound derogatory, but it wasn't, it wasn't meant to be derogatory. He said, Mark, Gifford's a great player, but he said, you're not Gifford. And he said, and I knew that, and I, in fact, I almost said, no kidding. You know, Gifford was an All-American. Gifford was leading the country in every offensive category. Gifford was on his way to win the Trophy. And here's this no-name guy who's going to step in and take his place, who – really hasn't played any meaningful minutes at all. I had mopped up in the fourth quarter of some games when Gifford got us ahead by like 50 points. Mm -hmm. But that's all I had done. And so Doug says, put these post-it notes on all the plays you like. Well, <laughs> it's kind of funny to think back, but I put a post-it note on all the rollout plays we had in that playbook. And we had never run these rollout plays with Gifford, but they were in the playbook. And so Doug said, what is with these rollout plays? And I said, well, you know, I grew up, playing, really learned how to play, playing with my neighborhood buddies and my brothers in the street playing two-hand touch. And when you play two-hand touch, you know, once you get past two alligators and the rush comes, <laughs> you start running around as a quarterback, right? And I said, I am a lot more comfortable moving around than just standing there in the pocket. When you stand in the pocket, you have to be able to read the defense. You have to be able to read the entire field. You have to then narrow the field down where you think you have the best opportunity given the defense against your offensive play call. Then you got to work this progression, and you got about two and a half seconds to get through all of that and get rid of the ball and then throw it accurately to the guy who's open. I said, Coach, I'm just not, I just don't know that I'm there yet. And, and so let me roll out because we'll shorten the field, we'll limit really what I can do. And if worse comes to worse, I'll just run and I can get a few yards anyway. <laughs> so this is the genius of Doug Scoville. Now, you've got to imagine that, you've got to remember this. Doug Scoville had coached in the NFL. He had coached Roger Staubach at Navy when Roger Staubach won the Heisman Trophy. He was coaching Gifford Nielsen, all American quarterback. The guy who knew what he was doing was not me. It was Doug. 
And Doug could have easily said, Mark, this is what we're going to do. I'm the guy who knows everything, and you're either going to fit into my system and what I know how to do and what I really am comfortable doing, or we're going to find someone who can't. That's what every other coach does. Not Doug Scovel. Doug Scovel said, tell me what you want to do. Tell me what you're most comfortable with. I don't care that you've never played before, but I'm going to create a game plan around what you feel confident doing, and that's what we're going to do. And that's exactly what he did. You had him and in but for that, so sorry, but for Mark. That, we would, we, but for that, we would not have had. We would not. It would have been a totally different experience. And it wasn't just that game. That's how he coached every week. That's how he coached me throughout throughout my career. That's how he coached Jim. That's how he coached Gifford. That's why Doug Scoville was the greatest coach I've ever had at any level. I never had another coach, even through ten years in the NFL, who ever said to me, "Tell me what plays you'd like to run this week." <laughs> <laughs> Never happened one time, except for Doug Scoville. You, you had him with you in 77. He goes to coach with the Bears in 78, so you have that Wally English season where you and Jim are splitting. And then Doug comes back for 1979, right? Doug comes back, yeah. How happy were you to, to have him back with you for your senior season at that point? Well, you know, it, it was 78 was a miserable, a miserable year for a lot of reasons, and not only miserable for me, but miserable for the whole team. Miserable. It was miserable, Jim, as well. And, and uh, having having Doug come back was just incredible. In fact, I'll never forget how that happened. Lavelle called the meeting like in March in the wintertime because there was a lot of grumbling about '78 mm-hmm. and a lot of a lot of wondering what we we're going to do. Were all the guys even going to come back and play? I mean, '78 was a really a rough year. And the reason it was a rough year is because in 77, we had a great team. We led the nation in passing. In 78, we had basically the same guys, and we didn't do any of that. And then to, to, to make the point, in 79, Doug comes back, and we lead the nation in every offensive category again. But the reason why 78 was so miserable is because we knew we could, we could do all those things. But it was like someone put a, you know, a, a leash on us and changed everything we were doing for kind of crazy reasons, and so we knew what we could do, and yet we, we weren't able to do it. So 78 was a really tough year. And then 79 becomes this amazing run, I mean, which you probably think you're going to win every game, and you almost did. Oh, you don't think, no, <laughs> you, know, you don't think you're going to win every game. You know you're going to win every game, and the question is not, are you going to win or are you going to lose? It's going to be, you know, how many points are you going to put up, and, and how fun is this really going to be? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the question. The only loss you suffer comes in the very last game you play at BYU. How do you view the way that senior season ended for you? Well, Brent Johnson was a great, and still is, a great friend of mine. And, uh, I mean, I was heartbroken for Brent because I knew that that missed kick was going to follow him around for the rest of his life. And it wasn't like he was, you know, he was the only one. I mean, I think I ride through three interceptions in the game. We had a bunch of fumbles. I mean, just we had some crazy things that happened. We had kickoffs and punts where the the ball bounced funny, and they picked it up and ran it in for scores. I mean, it was a weird, weird game. Um, I mean, it was disappointing to lose. I always wanted to win a bowl game because prior to that time, we'd never won a bowl game at BYU. And yeah. So I wanted to win a bowl game. It didn't matter to me that I was going to be first. I really never thought of it in that light. I just wanted to win a bowl game. And uh, here we are. We had a great chance. We had a great team. I think we were ranked the top ten. So if we had finished that game and won, we probably we may have been ranked the top five top seven, which would have been amazing for, for BYU. But, but no, it didn't. we had a great year. We had a great team. We had a great collection of guys that I'm still close to this day. And so despite the fact it was so disappointing to lose and to lose that way, uh, you know, it, it's still so great to think back about that year. College Football Hall of Fame, BYU Athletic Hall of Fame, now that a jersey number gets retired, what's the significance to you with, with this gesture relative to maybe those, the, those other halls of fame I just noted? Well, I, you know, I, I, I think for, for me, I, I mean, it was really, it's gratifying to be in those other hall of fames and to have that recognition. And, and this is really special, I think. But, you know, since, since the announcement, really what's gone through my mind is that team, especially the 1979 team, uh, we, did, we really did have a great team. And I've said this before, and it's no disrespect to any other team at BYU, but I would take the 1979 team and I would play any team in BYU's history. Hmm. In fact, I'd play any team in college football history. That, that was a special team, a special collection of guys, 
And um, so for me, that's really what this signifies. It's really about this team that I was a part of, had the privilege to play with, and um, that's really what it means to me. Thoughts about Robbie and Luke uh, having the similar honor with you? Yeah, Robbie and I have been friends for a long time. I've never met Luke, so it's going to be fun to meet him. I, you know, I really think that that um, kind of having this recognition with those two guys really makes it even more special, makes it more fun. I can't wait for you know Friday night at the banquet. I can't wait for the game, and, and I can't wait to kind of share this time with them. I, I just think it's a special time, and the fact that those two are involved just makes it that much better in my mind. I look forward to this weekend, too, and thanks very much for taking the time to talk with me today, and congratulations once again on this honor. Thanks so much. It's Mark Wilson, the first of three BYU Jersey retirement honorees to wear the number six here at BYU. Coming up after the break, national championship quarterback Robbie Bosco is our guest. Another of BYU's legendary number sixes is straight ahead. This is Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel on BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143, org, and the BYU Radio app. Welcome back to Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel. Well, in the late summer of 1984, I was a 17-year-old kid from Canada starting my freshman year at BYU. And on that first Saturday of my college life, I had just checked into the dorms when I saw a stream of students heading to the Marriott Center. They were going to watch the BYU football team on the big screen as ESPN televised its first ever live college football game, BYU at Pittsburgh. It was my initiation to Cougar football, and Robbie Bosco was now my quarterback. Robbie led BYU to a win that day and 12 more wins in 1984 as the Cougars won a national championship. Robbie Bosco would finish with 24 wins in 27 starts, become an All-American, and like Mark Wilson, throw for over 8,000 yards and 60 touchdowns as a Cougar. Robbie Bosco joins me in studio. And Robbie, this weekend's Jersey Retirement Ceremony is a tremendous individual honor, but it's probably even more special to share it with Mark and Luke Staley. Uh, no question. I mean, first of all, it's going to be an awesome thing. I mean, when, I remember when Tom first came into my house and and told me about this. I mean, it almost brought tears to my eyes. I mean, BYU is like everything to me, and this football program has been everything to me. And so I just I've really enjoyed that. I got to know Mark, even though we didn't play together. I got to know him really well, and we've become best of friends. And then I was coaching with Luke, um, two great guys, and l- really looking forward to it. Your BYU story is is uh, is interesting, and it starts in Roseville. Explain where Roseville is, and and what if any ties you might have had in any way to BYU when you were a high school athlete. So I might be wrong here on the geography, but Roseville is about five minutes five minutes east of Sacramento, and it's a small little town. It's grown quite a bit since I've been there, but uh, kind of a sports town. A lot of fun, a lot of fun growing up there, and so I really enjoyed that. I didn't really have uh, any relationship with BYU. The closest one was Tom Ramage, who recruited me, and he went to high school with my mom and dad. He's closer to my mom's age, and um, so Tom started recruiting me, and uh, it, it was interesting because you know, before I was really being recruited, I just played football. Uh, I went through, I played in California, they have four year schools. So I played as a freshman. I actually quit because it was just too hard. I couldn't learn the plays and it just wasn't my fit. Junior high came around. You got to play, you got to play. No, no, no. Finally, freshman came around and okay. They talked me into playing. I'll play. My brother was the quarterback of the varsity team. We ran the wishbone. So that obviously didn't excite me. And uh, so after about, I don't know how many practices, but after probably about a week of practice, I said, "Uh, I'm not going to do it. I'm done. So my brother talked me back into it, said, hey, I'll help you learn the plays. It's not that hard. You can figure it out. It's pretty simple. So I went back out, and we were fairly successful. Um, I really enjoyed playing with all my friends and stuff like that. Then sophomore came around, which would be the JV program. And so there was rumor of moving me up to varsity. <laughs> and once again, saying, I'll quit if I move up to varsity. <laughs> I don't want to do that. So luckily, I just stayed back down on the JV team and was very happy and content to do that. 
And then the, the the age group just ahead of me was super good. Like they they hardly ever lost games. So I'm like, you know what? I'll play as a junior. They're gonna have a good team, and and uh, you know I was gonna be the starting quarterback and everything like that. So I go, okay, I'll do that. And we were really good. And but you um, were the reluctant quarterback at this point. I was a reluctant quarterback, <laughs> but I wasn't reluctant when I played. Right. I mean, when I when I decided to play, I was all in. And it, it was weird because I wasn't trying to be a big shot. I literally did not like to play football, but naturally I could throw a football. And um, growing up, I was in that pump, pass, and kick stuff, and I went all the way to the Astrodome when Houston was the what ninth wonder of the world at the time. It was pretty cool, and so that was fun. So had a good year. Then all of a sudden, I started getting letters from everybody. I mean, I was getting letters from Oklahoma, you name it. And at the time, I didn't understand that letters are just sent out to everybody, pretty much. So I was getting stacks and stacks of letters, and I'm like, this is pretty cool. What is this, What is this though? And my coach told me, well, you can get your school paid for if you go to college. I'm like, oh, that would be cool. <laughs> that would really help my family out for sure to go to college. Otherwise, I'll probably go to Sierra College, which, which was a junior college there in home. So I, I did that, then I played my senior year thinking there's a chance. So then I started getting recruited, started getting these phone calls, started getting athletes from colleges sitting at my doorstep waiting for me to come home and talk to me. Mm. I don't know what was legal or not, but all that stuff was pretty cool. And so um, all that was great. And then uh, then I had to kind of get serious about you know where I wanted to go to school. And that was when the first BYU, BYU game I saw on television was Mark Wilson. And it was against it was a nationally televised game. I think it was on ABC. They played San Diego State. And Is that I the one where he like throws three touchdowns on his first three passes? First three passes were touchdowns. I'm like, because you know, I don't want to run the ball. I want to throw the ball. And I'm like, I want to go there. Yeah. That that would be a cool place to go. And I knew a little bit about BYU. Not so much from football, but when we went on family vacation. I know this is not going to excite a lot of people, but our family vacations in the summer were going down to Price, Utah. Mm. And so that's where my family grew up, and we had a ton of relatives, and we just, that's what we knew. So I would, would go by, would drive by Provo to get down there and stuff like that. So that's kind of what I knew about that. So then I watched Mark Wilson play, and, you know, I'm like, that's what I want to do. And then started getting recruited, recruited. I started turning schools down. Because they ran the ball, and I didn't want to run the ball. I mean, McMahon is throwing the ball 50 times a game. And I'm like, and they're throwing up all these big numbers, and I'm like, you know, deep down, that's where I want to go. And so we went through this whole process, and then because I lived up in Northern Cal, I was like first-team All-State Northern Cal, and Sean Salisbury was first-team All-State Southern Cal. And BYU's recruiting him. And BYU's recruiting him. And so my mind is, Sean's LDS, I'm not. If now Sean, your mom, was your mom LDS, but you weren't? Is that the way it was? Correct. Okay. So growing up, my mom was the only member of my family. Okay. So my mom's a Woodruff, so I was, I'm the great-great-grandson of Wilford Woodruff, but back then, didn't mean much to me. I wanted to go somewhere to play football. And so my parents kind of let us grow up for ourselves on if, if religion was going to be part of our lives. And I really didn't do much in the religion aspect growing up. But uh, wherever I was going to go to school, I was going to go there to play football. But either way, there, there was this faint tie to the church that, that exists, but it's not a real big thing for you, obviously. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly, exactly right. So then I'm thinking, you know what, if, if Sean Salisbury, the hot shot from Southern Cal, goes to BYU, him being LDS— He's going to get the first shot of everything. That was just my feeling. Mm-hmm. It wasn't about competition or anything like that. It was just about he's going to play. And so I narrowed my schools down to BYU, Cal, and San Diego State. Cal, they recruited me really, really hard. It was the closest college to my hometown. They were about an hour and a half away. They were in the Pac-10. Um I had a friend, Fred, a friend, Fred Bassana, who played. He's my sister's age, but he played at Cal and uh, San Diego State. And I chose San Diego State because Doug Scoville was the head coach there. He'd done great things with uh, Mark and others at the Some BYU. Great and, things. Yeah, yeah. First trip I ever went on there, he put his arm around me. He says, You know, Robbie, those great quarterbacks at BYU, that was because of me, and you're going to be the next great one. So, hey, 
as an 18-year-old kid, I'm like, let's go. So that was kind of my thing. So I, I just kind of waited, waited, and they wanted me to they wanted me to to select BYU and not when I said they, BYU did. And I'm like, you know, I'm not going to do it. Because if he goes to BYU, I'm, I'm going somewhere Meaning else. Salisbury. Salisbury. So, yeah. So, so BYU's in the mix, but, only, but as long as Salisbury's not going there, and he's being recruited hard by USC. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So he, he's basically USC or BYU. Mm-hmm. And I'm, basically, I'm really basically Cal or BYU. I remember it came, down to, it came down to the signing date, and I can remember Coach Ramage spent three full days in Roseville just waiting for me to answer stakeout <laughs> so i remember so the one day he could be at he could be at my high school and the one day he was there i can remember so vividly sitting in math class and we had glass windows so you could see people that were in the were outside he's pacing back and forth back and forth the whole class period and the teachers are looking at me i'm like i don't know he's he's going to be there for a while i guess <laughs> so then all of a sudden he knocks on the window. So I look at the teacher, and, she's, and she says, yeah, go ahead and go out. So I went out there, and, uh, and he said, Salisbury committed to USC. And I just said, okay, I'm coming to BYU. And it was really, it was really cool because that's where I always wanted to go. I wanted to go to BYU for whatever reason. And at the time, it was just football. But in the big picture, I think it was a lot more than just football. And so I said, let's go in. And so I, <clears throat> my dad was a high school counselor at Highlands High School. And I said, I just want to go. I want to call my dad first. And him not being a member of the church, he was super, super excited for me to go there. And uh, he couldn't have been more happy. So that was kind of the start, start of it. And. I just never looked back and turned out great for me. Now that you do look back, you can see what your heart was telling you, though, that there was a reason you needed to go to BYU, probably. I, I think so. I mean, I, honestly, Greg, I don't know if I could have survived at Cal. I couldn't. I mean, I remember going on my recruiting visit there, going to parties where they were all drinking, literally hearing gunshots outside the dorm room and asking athletes, like, what was that? They go, oh, don't worry about that. It happens a lot. I'm not like, oh, boy. And I just, I don't know if I could have survived there. And so, I mean, it's just amazing how uh, how my life has turned out since then. You committed to BYU when Jim McMahon was doing those amazing things. You get to be quarterback behind Steve Young, and then you get your last two years as a starter. And that kind of, back in the day, that's kind of the way things went. You probably had two years. The great BYU quarterbacks had... Two years, their junior and senior season. That's the way it was. It 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 worked exactly how they had, the BYU coaches had planned it out. You come in as a freshman, you play on the JV team, which you did, and Mark which, did, and that's what we had. Which back everybody then, right? did. Yeah. You're going to redshirt the next year, then you're going to back up and whoever the guy gonna, is, whoever the guy is, yeah. and then you're going to start for two years. I yeah. mean that that happened probably five consecutive quarterbacks before me. I know Mark Wilson and and. Uh, Jim McMahon had a little bit of a different thing. There was some injury thing. involved there, too. So it threw, yeah. yeah but. So I threw that off a little bit. But for the most part, that's exactly yeah. how that worked. And for me, it worked to the T. And so when I played in my first game, I was ready to go mentally. Physically, I don't know. I had some doubts after the first game. But mentally, I knew the plays, knew the offense, felt decently good about coverages and stuff like that. Going back to the uh, the LDS component of this whole equation, you came to BYU not a member of the church. When did that change? You know, I I, I kind of lived my life. Uh, I didn't drink in high school. I didn't do the marijuana thing and didn't do the drugs and stuff like that. For whatever reason, I just never got into it. My friends did. I didn't go to a lot of parties. And so that aspect of it was was good. So you were already a pretty good fit that way. That way I was a good fit. I wasn't going to get in trouble with that. And then I started surrounding myself, obviously, with a lot of LDS people. Uh, A lot of LDS people in the dorms and the football team and friends and stuff like that. And so I I got more interested in it. Um, 
there was a girl that I kind of started dating that may have swayed me just a little bit more in that direction. And so I think it was, uh, I felt really good about it and felt good about joining the church. And, and once again, going back to my roots, my family, who my dad's not LDS, could not have been more happy for me. And so I never, you, you always tell these stories where the family, you're out. You ostracized, you're, you're a pariah. You're we yeah. don't want you anymore. And I, I, I really couldn't have been more loved from my parents, my dad, and everybody with joining the church. So it was really good. What's the one game or thing you get asked about the most when people know your background as a BYU quarterback? Probably, probably the national championship game. The game itself. The game the itself. The Michigan game. But you get hurt. It's pretty dramatic. You get hurt, and there's a doubt whether you're going to come back in and the whole thing. There was never a doubt was I going to come back in. Because I remember, I remember going in the – at first there was a doubt because I tried to get back up, and I, and I couldn't. But when I went back in the, the locker room, I just asked them point, point blank, am I going to get hurt worse if I continue to play? There's certain injuries where you, you just don't want to mess with. And he says, no. It, it could be a worse sprain. It could tweak a little bit more on your knee or what have you, but it's not going to be worse. So I just said, tape me up as tight as you can and, and let's go back out. I mean, I, I can't go out there and play 12 games with these guys who play hurt. I mean, we got guys playing hurt all year. And if I could move around a little bit, I, I was going to play. And so when I came back on that field, it the the rush, the adrenaline rush, you just it's amazing how injuries really lessen once you get that adrenaline rush. So as I was walking down the down Jack Murphy, the tunnel, it's a long mm-hmm. tunnel. Yep. And then as you come out there, it was as soon as I stepped out onto the grass, there was a big roar. And I felt as if they were all looking at that tunnel to see, is he coming back out? And so so I started getting pumped up, ready to go. And I go to the sideline and start warming up. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I can't. I don't know if I can do this. It hurts, my, it hurts on my ankle to push off. And I don't know if I can do this. Warmed up some more, warmed up some more, and then finally said, I'm going to go give it a shot. I went up to Mike Holmgren, who was the quarterback coach at the time, says, okay, I'm ready to go in. He looked at me and goes, no, you're not going. And I said, yes, I am. And I walked. I just walked out there. And I said, I pulled out Blaine. Blaine was the backup at the time. And uh, I went in the game, and I could see it in my team's eyes that let's go. Let's go win this thing. And it was, it was just the greatest feeling of team comfort that we all had together as a group. And we kind of played like that all year long. The, the craziest thing is we never did the shotgun. And we did it right on the spot. Dropping back hurt a little bit. I was able to do it kind of, but if I could be in the shotgun, it would help me with my vision and help me with getting back in the pocket a lot better. The whole team, it was amazing that year. And it just, you saw it grow during that part. When Kelly comes down with that ball in the end zone uh, to seal it, what kind of sensation did you feel when that happened? It was like we couldn't believe it. We did it. We, we did everything that, that we were supposed to do, and we just won this football game. It was amazing. That win was part of a 25-game win streak. Do you still remember the game that ended it? Yes, I do. UCLA at home. At home. Should have never lost to them. Close game, 27-24. We scored late in the game to go ahead, and they, they couldn't do anything offensively. Our defense was just stuffing them like crazy. They were barely crossing the 50. And our corner lined up tight on, I think it was Gerard. I think he was the number one uh, first-round draft pick. Gerard. Gerard. Yeah, yeah. Gerard. And uh, we didn't have any help behind him. And they got it and went all the way down to like, I don't know, what, 30-yard line? Anyways, they eventually scored, and then we, we tried to come back, and we couldn't quite get it in. There's so much more we could talk about uh, involving your pro career and then, my gosh, coaching and administrator. There's so much to hit, and I don't have time to do it. But leaving as a player, coming back, as a, your coaching career lasted 15 years, right? You were, yeah. you were coaching for 15 years. When you decided it was time 
to to be done with that phase and move into the next phase. How gratifying has it been to still be part of the mix here at BYU? Well, Greg, I mean, I love BYU, and I know you love BYU. And there's a feeling when you've been around this university and, and the programs for a long period of time, it just continues to grow on you. And, I mean, I couldn't be happier. I mean, able to raise my family here and, and marry my wife Karen here and, and all the things that go along with that has been very gratifying. I love what I'm doing now. I wouldn't change anything that's happened in my life, and it's been a pleasure to be a part of it all. And to get to share the honor you'll have Saturday with uh, with Luke and Mark. I mean, it's um, the number six has been a great number here, and to see it up there, um, it's really special. And and I just want to go back one quick thing on. I've always played football as a team. I've never thought of football as an individual sport. So I have many teammates that could easily have their name up there alongside mine. Um, because without them, this wouldn't be happening. You just don't put your name in on the stadium as a football player without the help of 85, 105 other people. So there's a lot of people to thank. Robbie, thank you uh, for the time and uh, your time with BYU. Congratulations once again. Thank you, Greg. That's former BYU player coach and now athletics administrator Robbie Bosco. Coming up next, the third number six to have his jersey number retired this Saturday. Luke Staley is next as Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel continues on BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143, org, and the BYU Radio app. Did you know that BYU has more than 80 alumni chapters worldwide? It's a way to connect with other alumni, help students in need, and help spread the influence of the Y all around the world. Most places have chapters where you live, and there are also chapters based on what your major was or even your profession. And chapters do great things, like helping provide financial aid for more than 400 BYU students this year. Find your chapter and get connected at alumni.byu.edu slash chapters. BYU alumni, connected for good. Welcome back to Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel. Well, it was the first year of BYU's post-Lavelle Edwards era, and with a new head coach came a new offense. It featured an option attack that was led by a mobile quarterback in Brandon Doman and a backfield partner who would go on to have one of the most prolific seasons in BYU football history. Running back Luke Staley battled through injury to have productive seasons as both a freshman and sophomore, totaled 20 touchdowns and almost 1,000 yards on the ground, but what he did in his junior season was truly spectacular. In only 11 games, Luke Staley ran for almost 1,600 yards while averaging better than 8 yards per carry. He scored 28 touchdowns, which remains a BYU single-season record. His 48 career scores are also still the BYU standard. His career average of just under six yards per carry is another BYU record. He won the Doak Walker Award as the nation's top running back in that 2001 season. He was a consensus All-American and a draft pick of the Detroit Lions. His college and pro careers were both cut short due to injury, but when Luke was ready to go and running, no one did it better. Luke joins me in studio, and Luke... This Saturday's Jersey Retirement Honor is a reflection of your amazing accomplishments, but the fact that you join others who wore the same number is something pretty special too, right? You know, I, I caught the last end of uh, Robbie's uh, interview, and, you know, like what Robbie said, you, you go in, football's not an individual sport. Football is all about your teammates, and if you have good teammates, you look a lot better and vice versa. So it's phenomenal to go in there and to be part of – two legends that, um, you know, I grew up and looking back through BYU history, they were two people that always stood out. So it's a huge honor. And, uh, you know, there's not, there's not, uh, better people to go up there with. You're already a member of the BYU athletic hall of fame. And now to have a Jersey number retired, does one honor, uh, differentiate from the other in, in any way to you? Is there any added significance to have this uh, coming on Saturday? Yeah, I think there is. Um, you know, growing up and when I was getting ready to come to BYU or to, to any college program, there, there there was no fascination or, um, you know, idea that I would be put up in a, on a stadium. I just wanted to come into a team and contribute and be part of something and, and, and you know, try to elevate it to that next level. And so this is a huge honor. You know, I used to, growing up, 
sneak into the stadium and you know be middle of the middle of the night and it's something that I never never fantasized about and something that I never thought would happen. You grew up in uh, Tualatin, yeah. Oregon. Were you born and raised there, or did you just lived uh, high school years there? So it's uh, somewhat complicated. Uh, I was born in Bountiful. Six weeks, we moved to Oregon. And then at seven and eight, we moved back to Utah and we're in Farmington and then back to Oregon. So 16 of 18 years, we're in Tualatin. So you would, you, you'd consider Oregon your home state, even though you spent some time here in Utah, right? Yeah. Your older brother, Dustin, how big of an influence was he, has he been on your life and your athletic life as well? So I have two older brothers, um, uh, a brother that's two years older than Dustin, and Dustin's, you know, five, six years older than I am. So everything that these that they did, I did. Uh, I idolized whatever they did, uh, and especially Dustin, just because we were a little bit closer. I, I absolutely idolized everything that he did. I remember in, I think it was probably third grade, we had to do a report on our hero, and, you know, you pick whoever you wanted and and he was the one that I picked and so you know I I idolized him he was a um, great role model he was successful he he worked hard at what he did and and it paid off when Dustin was getting recruited out of high school there was some teams after him and one of the teams was Boise State they were recruiting him pretty heavy and I remember he was came to the to the the conclusion that he was going to commit to Boise State and I remember being in the kind of the sidelines uh watching this and I thought man I hope he doesn't do that and hoping that he would change his mind to go to BYU so uh, I don't know what happened but a about a day later he you know decided to change that and and commit to BYU and so at that point I was was excited because even at that time I knew BYU was going to be where I was going to go who else was into you that uh, provided a little bit of consideration? Um, most of the teams on the West Coast. Pac-12 so, schools? Yeah. Once you're at BYU, you talked about uh, being so excited that you'd be the kind of guy that would hop the fence and sit in the stands of an empty stadium. Was that you back then? Yeah. Yeah. So there was uh, two or three times I remember. Uh, I was probably 14 the first time, you know, late at night, 12, 1 o'clock in the morning, and Hopping that fence, and then um, my freshman year before our first game, I remember hopping the fence. Mark Wilson, I talked to Mark, and he mentioned the role of Lance Reynolds in his life, which is rather unique because Lance was a missionary in Seattle when Mark was living in Seattle and became Lance's friend when Lance was a BYU guy, and that's kind of how Mark was attracted to BYU, one of the ways. Once you got to BYU, um, Lance Reynolds uh, became a pretty important figure in your BYU career. How would you describe the relationship and what he did mean to you here? So Lance was, uh, his recruiting area was the Northwest at the time. Uh, and so he, you know, was in our house five years earlier with Lavelle. I even think Robbie maybe even made that trip. But, uh, the, you know, those three gentlemen were in our house five years before I went through the, the, the um, you know, the process. But Lance is, there's nobody like Lance. Um, you know, I, I, there's some stories I've heard um, on how he, has gone through his recruiting and, and how just it's so different than any other schools and any other coaches that you talk with. Um, you know, and there's some stories out there that his, just the, his, his style and that way that he recruited brought some top level uh, recruits just because it was so different. What's his gift? Being genuine. Uh, you know, I think that goes a long way. And especially in the, you know, when you're a 18 year old kid and you're getting, School's coming after you, and they're promising you in the world. Lance doesn't do that. Lance just says, hey, we think the world of you. We'd love to have you. And it's, you know, he really cares about you and and, the, and your family and what what you can contribute to the university. Would you say Lavelle was kind of in the same mold? You got Lavelle in his last season. Yeah. You know, growing up, that there was probably two or three things that set BYU apart, um, you know, obviously early on in the process, but... I wanted to play for a legend, and, and Lavelle was that legend. Um, so to, to be able to be part of Lavelle's last two years was, um, you know, it was worth the two years. Your last year was the first year with a whole new system. How interesting was it to be part of that very unique year where Lavelle's now gone, and it's a whole new look in every possible way, yet it's super successful from game one? Yeah, you know, I think you've got to go back to Lavelle's last year. And, you know, we were struggling, fighting. Uh, I think we had a winner. We were four and six. We had, and Lavelle, you know, 29 years, didn't have a losing season. 
So we had to win our last two games to, to go 6-6. Six and six. One's and, the home game against New Mexico, then the ender at Utah. Correct, yeah. correct. And so, um, you know, we, we were fighting to try to not send LaBelle out on that, you know, losing season. So we were able to get back into it uh, and, and finish that season. But the, the pieces were in place for that next year for when uh, Croton came in. And so, you know, Croton did a good job of putting people in their, the, the spots, but the people were already in place. These were Lavelle's people and these were Lavelle's guys. Uh, Gary just saw where to put him, plug him in place, and was – at the time, I think Gary was uh, a little bit ahead of the coaching at that time. They were the same guys but doing a lot of different things, yeah. things that fit them really well, but it was a different system than people were used to seeing at BYU, certainly. Yeah, you know, even back then we were, you know, I th- there wasn't too many teams that were running the Wildcat. We were running the Wildcat, and he just knew how to, how to you know, exploit defenses. Were you excited about it personally when you saw what he had in mind for you and the team offensively? Or were you kind of, let's wait and see on this thing? Well, so there, there was a couple times I went in and spoke with um, – uh, Hell, is that who it was? Val Hell, yeah, Val. Val. Yeah. So there was a couple times I went in and spoke with Val and and said, "Hey, Lance is your guy. You know, Lance has, has paid his dues. This is his time." Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I heard Croton was in the mix, I started getting a little bit, a uh, little bit shaky. I, I wasn't didn't want to be part of an offense that, you know, threw the ball forty fifty times a game. Just because that would diminish the role that I thought I could have, and and, and uh, be able to, you know, take my game to the next level right. as a runner. Yeah, and so, um, you know, I, I was a little bit apprehensive once he came in, but once he came in, he was. Uh, it was just a different feeling from from the first meeting to the last mm. the last game. You talked about the Utah game being maybe the loudest you've ever heard any stadium or any crowd environment. Does that still ring true to you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I I don't. I was at the game uh, Saturday, and you know, I don't even think the noise was even in the same, um, you know, same area as that as that game. Um, you know, I I haven't heard anything like that before or since. That's my first season calling play by play, the two thousand one season, and uh, I remember you streaking down the sideline and just the sound in my headphones of the crowd mic just it was an eruption i and i i'm with you i mean i felt the building i thought too often i really felt the building kind of shake like really really like you really feel the tremors in the press box that day i felt the whole thing kind of rocking it was a it was a crazy sensation yeah it was and it's fun to go back and you you know if you do look at that that run that you know that every camera shaking so it was yeah. i mean that was you know that was it was a good time we, we had a good team, a good uh, you know coaching staff, and good fans. I got you to eleven and zero, and then I think the next game is Mississippi State. Then we're twelve and zero, but I remember very very well feeling happy that BYU won the game, but knowing the effect of what happened at the end of the game with you going out with that injury, it was a really hard way to get to twelve and zero. And I know for you it must have been much harder knowing that you weren't going to be part of game thirteen or fourteen, right? Yeah, yeah, it was. You know, it was. Um... Yeah, obviously it's something you don't want to do or, 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 you know, you don't want to go down the road. But I was, um, you know, it was something I was dealing with all season. Uh, in the ankle, I was getting uh, injections to, to numb it. And if it, you know, would have held out three more games, who's, who knows? How were you able to do what you did as uh, in, in that 2001 season as kind of banged up as you were? Just, uh, I mean... You know, I... I when you have good teammates, it, it makes it easier, um, you know, and you want to do it. You, you want to produce like they're producing for you. And so it's just a, a contagious thing, and it's what team sports is all about. I still remember uh, being in a hotel room in Hawaii and watching you get an award in Orlando. Was it Orlando that you had yeah, to go? Yeah. yeah. So there I am, night before, I think, our game against Hawaii, and I'm watching you, our guy, with crutches, go up onto the stage in Orlando and get an award in an ESPN show for being the top running back of the year. It was a pretty surreal experience, and it was, again, tinged with sadness, knowing that we're there, you're thousands of miles away, and we were separate at that point. Did you feel, was it hard for you knowing you were separate from the guys at that point and the team was going to try and do something without you? Yeah. Um, you know, I still, the, the whole process was kind of surreal. Um, you know, at the beginning of the season, I wasn't even – they have a watch – Doak Walker uh, watch list, and I wasn't on the watch list. I wasn't uh, – kind of in the midseason, they, they go back and they refine the list, and mm-hmm. I wasn't even on that list. 
so I remember there was kind of a panic, I don't know, maybe about eight, nine weeks into the season. Um, you know, uh, Reynolds, who was our um, media relations. Jeff Reynolds yeah, at the time, yeah. Was our media relations guy kind of coming up to me and goes, you know, we're try- trying to fill out this application to, to get you on here. And so we were asking, um, you know, some volunteer questions. And so it was a really late process. Um, and then that next that Hawaii week, uh, Lance or Jeff comes up to me and goes, hey, can you go down to Orlando uh, for this award banquet, and at the time I was like, "No, I'm want I want to go to Hawaii. I want to be with the team." And and um, he, him, and Croton ended up pulling me aside and said, "Hey, you probably should go down to this." And so it was a last second thing. Hmm. Um, the night before, I hopped on a plane. Actually, I think it was the day of. I hopped on a plane and went to Orlando. But you know, it's 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 difficult not being with the, the guys that got you to where you're at. It had been a goal of yours, but one you really didn't share publicly, right? In your in your junior season, was to win that award. It was. Um, you know, I remember sitting down beginning of the season um, at the old Smith Fieldhouse, and you know, just on a scratch piece of paper, writing down my goals, and I didn't even know the name of the award. Um, and so, but I, you know, I wanted to be the best running back in the in the nation. Uh, you know, and I, I I felt like I could. I felt like the pieces were in place. Uh, it was just a matter of going out and doing it. And obviously, there had to be some luck in in that in that season. The one piece that never, I guess, got completely put in place relative to your aspirations beyond that was the was the health component. How do you view the fact that uh, injury was kind of a constant companion with you uh, throughout your athletic career? I, I guess I didn't know any better. Um, it, it was something that I've always dealt with from my freshman year in high school. Um, you know, to, to the last year I played football. It was just something that I, I didn't necessarily expect. Uh, obviously, I didn't want to happen, but it just did. And, and um, I tried to make the most of it, try to make it a motivation for me when I did come back. Uh, so, you know, maybe I wouldn't be where I was, uh, where I was able to get to without the injuries. I don't know. Do you ever wonder, had you had a, a healthier career, the kind of things you could have done? Or do you say, I was grateful to do what I did do, and I'm, I'm grateful for the time I had to do what I was able to do with these teammates in mind? You know, I think both. Uh, I think both. The, the, the answer to the question is both. Um, you know, I, who knows what I would have been able to do. Um, but it, it's more about today and how I feel today. Um, you know, there's, there's some, you know, I, every day I, I wake up in pain, and uh, obviously that's part of football. But, um, you know, I, I obviously didn't, don't wish to go through that. I wish I didn't go through that. You look well and you look fit and you look healthy and strong, but you do deal with, uh, I guess, the day-to-day pains of, of your athletic career, right? Yeah, it's all a facade. <laughs> you look good. You, you must, I mean, clearly you have a regimen, right? You still do it some way. Uh, I, I try. I try to get up and go mountain biking and um, if I can, go work out with some, with some weights. But it's getting to the point where I... We'll get to the gym, but then I sit there and I'm like, yeah, I don't want to do this. So I just turn around and go home. How's life and family life these days for you? Where are you living and what are you doing? Great. Uh, you know, that's obviously the motivation and the uh, the, the reward is the family. So um, we live up in Draper. We have two kids, two boys, 13 and 11, Tate and Crew, and uh, in medical cells. How excited are you for Saturday to be on the field with Mark and Robbie for what's going to transpire? I think it'll be, you know, coming back in, you know, six six weeks, coming back next year and seeing it. I think that will be when it, um, you know, it, it, it's it's still, I, I don't know how to deal with it. It's still awesome. Um, um, you know, I, I question a little bit if, um, you know, the, I'm going up there with two great guys, two great players that had great careers. And... Um, you know, I, I was blessed to be part of, uh, you know, be on a good team with great teammates. And, uh, you know, we were just able to, to produce that year. I was interviewed last year by a, a student team that did a documentary, I think, about you and your career. And I remember sitting and and uh, talking about you. And it was so easy to just roll through these uh, superlatives of of the guy I saw play in a way that I didn't think anybody else I've seen play before or since. Uh, you were a remarkable, remarkable player. 
it was inspiring to watch you do what you did, and I'm just grateful to have had the chance to call your games when you played uh, because it was a, it was a thrill, and I don't think we're going to see many like you uh, moving forward. And well, so it was it was a real thrill. Well, I, I appreciate that very much. And thanks for coming in and sharing yeah. the time with us. And congratulations again on this honor. Thank you very much. And that is Luke Staley ending our show, which also featured interviews with both Mark Wilson and Robbie Bosco. All three will be honored Saturday afternoon at Lavelle Edwards Stadium as BYU hosts Wisconsin, and the jersey number six will be retired within the stadium walls. Hope you can be in the stadium on Saturday. Hope you're with me next Wednesday night right here for another edition of Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel here on BYU Radio. Good night, and I'll talk to you next week.